Welcome into Chasing Interesting. I'm Craig Hoffman, and this is a podcast that is getting back to its roots. Season three, here we go. This is going to be a series of hopefully interesting conversations. The one today certainly was, and it happened in a very interesting way, which I'll talk to you about in just a second. I want to first, though, give huge props to my man, Joe Girard, for joining me for season two. It was an awesome way to lead up to the election and just have someone to, to consistently week in and week out bounce ideas off of and have some fun with and and just do some stuff that frankly we wanted to do for a long time and uh joe's got a lot of stuff going on with work and i've got some things going on and so what we're gonna do for season three is go back to how this was in season one just talking to interesting people it'll probably be a little bit more of an intentional political turn in this season but i am definitely excited to talk to a bunch of different people and just get their thoughts on what's going on in the world and, and the way some of the different things that we all observe happening happen behind the scenes. And today's conversation is certainly a great first step on that realm. Uh, Greg Pinello is a guy that I've known for almost five years now, and he is someone that I should have thought about having on this podcast a long time ago. Um, but just literally off the cuff today. We've got another great podcast plan to tape later this week that'll come out next week uh, with a really good friend of mine who works on Capitol Hill. But we were going back and forth on Twitter and eventually I just went, this is not productive, nor is it very adult of, especially me, uh, Greg was more of an adult than I was, um, but of either of us to be sniping back and forth on Twitter. Let's have a real conversation because we're talking about messaging and talking about uh, communications and Greg does it professionally uh, in politics and I do it professionally outside of politics and I have long wanted to talk to someone and Greg and I have talked about this stuff before on Twitter and and one time we got together and had lunch in person and, and spent a good chunk of time talking about it but um, just talking about how these messages are approached, how they affect different groups of people and all this kind of stuff. And so there was a specific jumping off point, which we talk about in the conversation and then we went in. So uh, surprise, episode one, season one could not have started off better. I'm really glad this happened. Uh, it is true to the title and the mission of this podcast to chase interesting. I was having a conversation and we chased it a little bit further than Twitter. And uh, without further ado, here's my chat with my friend, Greg Pinello, Democratic strategist, and off we go for season three. My guest today on Chasing Interesting is a Democratic strategist who has worked on the last, count them, one, two, three, four presidential campaigns. Uh, he is someone that I got to meet a couple of years ago as I was moving to D.C. And, and got really interested in politics. He was following my work covering the Washington football team, and uh, we we struck up a, a conversation, and we're happy to, after bickering at each other on Twitter for the last 30 minutes, I said, hey, let's be productive. Let's talk like humans. And here we are on a phone uh, talking like real humans about things that matter. Greg Pinello is here on Chasing Interesting. Greg, appreciate the time, sir. I am mostly human still after this campaign so thank you for that compliment <laughs> that's <laughs> I, I mean honestly that's about talk. as good as any of us can do right now mostly human <laughs> we'll take it mostly human mostly still operating functioning as a human being but it's good to talk to you 
How would you, before we get into what we were discussing on Twitter and a larger conversation mm-hmm. on strategy and messaging and mm-hmm. specifically as it regards to socialism and, and progressive policies and where those two intersect mm-hmm. and maybe don't, um, how, how would you describe the last seven months you were working on the Biden campaign and, and really the last month leading up to the election? What's it like to be on the inside of a presidential campaign like that? Um, well, this was a really weird presidential campaign. So, you know, I, I might talk about the ways it was different um, than the last three where, um, frankly, there was, you know, there were a lot of, you know, there were in-person meetings. There was a lot more going out on the road and filming. Um, the way that the Biden team structured the paid media operation was also a little different than it than um, some of um, the the previous campaigns that I've worked on. And, and it's a lot of the same people, though. Um, but. Um, they had an approach that really uh, was pretty innovative. They brought a lot of the editorial work inside the campaign. Um, so it was it was a you know a process of not going to studios all the time and and not um, going to meetings all the time. It was more like working in my home on scripts and um, you know um, trying to trying to hit the mark in terms of um, the briefs that the campaign's providing and looking at the numbers and trying to figure out the best way to message and the best way to convert it all into actual creative um, and actual ads. So it, it was like I was, you know, doing a lot of the same things, but um, in my house and not with not with sort of all the all the the high touch that sometimes is more the case in these campaigns. So it was like being a monk um, and <laughs> writing a lot and um, and then, you know, having stuff, having work that goes into a production process and a testing process and all of that. Um, so, um, you know, parts of it familiar, parts of it really different. Um, and, you know, and I, and, and I think that the, Part of what was interesting, too, was that, you know, people tend to forget I mean, Joe Biden was was being counted out before South Carolina. The campaign didn't have a ton of money and it was running out of money. Mm-hmm. Um, then then things changed and they changed really fast. And, you know, uh, uh, most of the presidential campaigns I've worked on, I didn't work on for seven months. I worked on for 17 months. Um, and this one was different um, because. You know, they, the the Biden team um, working its way through the primary really wasn't, um, you know, doing gazillions of dollars worth of ads and, and wasn't able to have uh, huge teams of people working. That changed when we win the, when we win the nomination, but it's like building the plane while it's going down the runway. So it was a very rapid ramp up um, to actually get moving into this thing um, for the general election. Um so that that too was a was a little different. I mean, on the you know the Obama campaigns and on uh, even for Hillary, I mean the work began in earnest um, sooner, sooner yeah. in the process in a lot of ways, and, and was and and the teams were assembled sooner in the process. And you're building the the plane as it goes down the runway over Zoom. 
because you know you can't actually yeah. be on the plane yeah. because we can't be on planes. I mean, I guess we can, but right. that gets into I don't want to go down that road or down that runway, if you will. All right, yeah. so I want to yeah. let, let's dive into the substance of of what because yeah. we could probably honestly talk for an hour about creative processes uh, during COVID. Yeah, that's yeah. maybe a separate because uh, I've obviously sure. had my own one uh, in, yeah. in, in my job, but that that's a different conversation for a different day. So you tweeted. Um, as we're recording this 55 minutes ago, um, to a tweet that I responded to. And, and you talked about, uh, how Bernie Sanders in your words has damaged the democratic brand. It's indisputable and brand almost always trumps message. A lot of Latinos in the U S are here exactly because they didn't want to be socialists or live under socialism. My Cuban dad was one of them. So this is, this is personal for you. And I, in a very Twitter and non, uh, non-tactful way responded uh democrats should stop talking about latinx voters as as a homogenous monolith and they would get a lot better results sanders as in bernie sanders crushed uh biden in the latinx vote in the primary by doing that and i also say quit doing the the republicans work for them and demonizing good ideas with a dumb title and we could i could read the entire tweet exchange but i don't think that's particularly helpful when uh people can listen to us talk about this in non-constricted to 280 character ways that are more tactful and and more descriptive so i'm curious just at first like what what prompted um that and and what were you looking at that that prompted that and and what concerns did you have as you were looking at all this polling data and and crafting messages about what the left wing of the party i will i will use that as the descriptor the left wing of the party um talks about and proposes and and whether that is coming from them or people that are giving bad faith attacks just what that that wing of the party has meant to the ability for democrats to not just get votes at the top of the ticket, but to to get votes down the ballot as well. Right. So uh, actually what prompted my tweet was um, seeing a report um, from Mark Caputo, uh, who's uh, you know one of the deans of, of political journalism in Florida, reporting out that, yes, Democrats were deeply concerned going back months that um, the, the association of the party with the concept of socialism um, was going to be a real hurdle with certain sectors of voters, and particularly Venezuelans and Cuban Americans who are um, who are a, a bigger percentage of of the Latino vote in Florida mm-hmm. than many other places. So. Um, the and 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 I think that those concerns were bubbling up both in, in polling and um, from local electeds that were were concerned that um, that the association with socialism created um, a permission structure not just for um, potentially a portion of Latino voters to to either vote for Trump or vote Trump and split their tickets, but it did the same thing with a lot of white voters in Florida also. That um, I think that there's a portion of the electorate that was, um, you know, anti-Trump, did not want four more years of Trump. Um, Understandable take. Yeah, <laughs> and, we, and we did, and, and I think that, um, so we've seen a very high turnout election. We turned out by virtue of doing that, by, by virtue of having a high turnout election, we also turned out a lot of moderate to conservative leaning independents 
who didn't want to vote for Trump but weren't willing to give us the keys to the whole thing. So they split their they split their tickets. They voted Democratic in, a pre, in the presidential level, but they didn't want to vote Democratic in Senate races and some of the House races. And I believe that that a big part of that was a, the sense that the influence, and, and we can argue about labels a lot, but um, that the that the fact that a democratic socialist was number was the second uh, highest vote getter twice in our party uh, in a primary, though he lost pretty substantially actually both times. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 gave the Republicans a bludgeon to use against us. And they wielded it with enthusiasm all over the country, um, down the ballot, associating Democratic candidates in swing districts particularly um, with the concept of socialism and the idea that, hey, look, it's it's uh, Bernie is going to uh, Bernie and AOC are going to they're running the Democrats on the hill. They're going to run Joe Biden. Joe Biden's going to have to kowtow to them. That means, you know, they're going to defund the police. Um, I'm for climate change, but boy, we can't afford Green New Deals right now. The country's sick with COVID. Um, I think that those dynamics were very real in the minds of a lot of voters. And I I think there's a tendency to discount strategic voting um, sometimes um, by pundits. But I do think a lot of people go to the polls and think about, all right, I'm getting rid of Trump, but I'm not ready to give Chuck Schumer the Senate and I'm not ready to give, um, you know, uh, a, a bigger platform to these things that I don't like. And none of this has anything to do with the merits um, of right. any particular policy. And, and that's right. I, I guess that's just where I get confused though. And so this goes mm-hmm. back to, um, you know, when we sat down uh, at lunch four years ago or whenever it was. And I just asked you like, why are Democrats afraid to make the argument? And this is something four years later, I still don't really understand. And this is ultimately like, if I were to singularly define within the political realm, my chase for interesting to play off the title of this Mm -hmm. podcast, it is this, why it like Republicans have to lie because their policies would hurt people. If they told people we would like to raise taxes on, uh, or we would like to cut taxes for rich people, which means that we won't be able to pay for things like roads or education or like, and, and explain the real world, co- real world consequences of those actions. Yep. They would yep. like, they would lose every election because if they were required to tell the truth, the truth is bad for them. On the other hand, the truth is good for us. You and I both, from an actual policy standpoint, sit in very similar progressive places. That we actually, like, the reason that I think Medicare for All is a good idea is because it makes sense. I understand the policy, and I understand how it would work, and I think it is the way to get healthcare to people, which is a good thing. And and even Republicans agree that healthcare for people is a good thing. They just think it should be run a different way. And so if, if the argument to make for us is this is a good thing, why can we not successfully make it, and why, more importantly to me, are we scared to make it? Because the difference between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren or AOC and Katie Porter, who just won a, a traditionally Republican district for the second time out in Orange County in California, 
is not very distinct other than the labels that are used that, that yes, they have adopted. And I, and I think that's valid criticism. Like why are the, why is especially Bernie Sanders? I think AOC is more whatever about it, but Bernie is like, no, I am a democratic socialist. It's like, you don't need to say that out loud, but the yeah. reality of what that means would be far less scary if Democrats didn't, didn't give in to the idea that it was scary. That if someone went like, oh, I'm scared of socialism. Well, okay, what are you scared of? I'm scared that the government is going to X, Y, Z. Well, like, okay, well, that's not what we stand for. This is what we stand mm-hmm. for. This is why. Why, do, why does the party as a whole refuse to make that argument and allow the Republicans to wield that bludgeon, as you described it, so successfully and continuously without significant pushback? Got it. So uh, I think it is, there's not a, uh, there's, I don't think there's any hesitation to try to win an argument on a lot of these issues. It's how the argument is framed that is a problem. And if you're explaining in politics, you're losing. Trying to explain to people why this policy or that policy isn't necessarily exactly socialist, like Medicare for all, which I support 100%. Um, you're already behind in making your case. Um, And I think that not just in politics, but in marketing and pretty much everything in communications, three things matter. Brand, message, messenger. Mm -hmm. Democratic socialist is a bad brand in the United States. Um, I mean, look, if, if, if Republicans were honest and they called themselves... Republican fascists, we would just call them fascists and kick their ass on that and use it against them all the time and attach all kinds of imagery to it. They're smarter than that. They don't call themselves Republican fascists. They're just Republicans. So um, the other thing I I think we we have to grant is that the, the Republicans may be wrong on policy on a lot of things. They do politics pretty good. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they use it means it works. So if the question is, how do we make it not work? Um, I don't, I, I think that if the brand is broken um, and that good policies are associated with a broken brand because the messenger of those policies and Medicare for all was never Bernie's original idea or something. We've been talking about Medicare for all sure. for a long time. We, we've called Since, it single payer. We've called yeah. it public option. We've called it a bunch of things. By virtue of Bernie embracing Medicare for all so uh, and, and claiming it as his idea, that that is a messenger that allows Republicans to say, oh, look who's in favor of Medicare for all, the socialist. And, mm-hmm. you know, politics is a lot of things. It ain't nuance. But he's a democratic socialist. That's not a conversation anybody's going to win. And um, so I think that what we what we had was really good ideas that are adopted by a, a flawed messenger carrying a bad brand. So that what that leaves you with is one of you have one one of the three legs of the stool left to you to try to use message to counteract both the brand and the messenger. That's hard. Yeah. Um, we actually we actually succeeded quite a lot at it. Joe Biden's going to end up winning by 7 million votes. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
there is a lot about and winning by seven million votes, by the way, after you know being called the, you know having the most liberal platform that anyone has ever run for president on by by selecting the most liberal by voting record member of the United States Senate as his running mate by actually talking about climate by actually talking about the $15 minimum wage and having that be probably out of the box something that he's going to be working on we actually did make a real case for progressive policies on all these issues but I'll give you an example from your former world. Um, so drafting Chase Young is a great idea, right? Mm -hmm. Looks like it. But if if we told everybody that, you know, Chase Young was 100% Dan Snyder's choice, Snyder's the one who wants Chase Young. Does everybody still think it's a phenomenal idea based on right. the track record of Dan Snyder? Um, I think socialism's the Dan Snyder of American <laughs> politics. Man, thank you for Nobody. that tweet that I can use to promote this podcast because that is going to, that is a chef's kiss tweet right there. It's a broken brand and it's hard to come. And even when Dan Snyder makes a good decision, you can argue, okay, made a good decision hiring Ron Rivera, but nobody in this town thinks Dan Snyder knows a damn thing about football and they think he's a jerk. So um, here, here though, impenetrable here, ideas that poison a lot of what, anything good the organization does um but that that so that's kind of how i feel about the the impact of brand and the impact of messenger and then we're left to use message to try to ferret all this stuff out and it's a big challenge so here let's keep running with that analogy um and see how far we can take it here if someone says dan snyder doesn't know anything about football here's the thing they're right so, like, at, at that point, you have to not be afraid to say it. And, and I guess that's kind of my, like, I think to go back to, to politics and, and use a more specific example, right? I love how AOC talks about fracking because she's not afraid to say, yeah, I'm anti-fracking because it's a terrible idea. It's a bad thing. And, and I think that sometimes or you know i i've i went on a rant about taxes uh in the fall on on this podcast about how democrats need to stop being afraid of saying yes i want to raise taxes because here's what taxes do taxes and sure you can probably counter yeah, and say taxes whole campaign on raising taxes on the wealthy by the way right a hundred percent but i'm talking about not just on the wealthy that's easy that's low-hanging fruit but let's make the argument that hey look if you give if you're willing to give a couple more dollars in taxes here's how it adds up to better schools better you know whatever and, and the mm -hmm. argument becomes that taxes are actually an investment and you will see the payoff in your own bottom line nevertheless in intangible monetary intangible things monetarily in your community that will create a better mm -hmm. world for you to live in and if that we took some of the negatives and like i mean obviously you know this as well as anyone some of the best joe biden ads were just putting up uncut things of donald trump because he says the dumbest things and, and other republicans at times would do that as well like you know, you just, you guys, the Lincoln Project did it a couple of times, but so did, by the yep. end, so was the Biden campaign of like, you take an uncut Trump thing and slap, I'm Joe Biden and I approve this message on an ad. And it's like, yeah, that's actually a good thing for us. Thank you for making our case. And I guess that's kind right. of the point is so, if, if Republicans are so unscared to lie about things, 
why are in some cases if we believe the policy is good and, I'm, and I, I know that there's an, another element of that of what you just said in regards to messenger and brand that mm-hmm. I am ignoring that I do want to continue to dive into and if you want to diverge mm-hmm. in this answer sure. as well go by all means but like if, yep. if Republicans are so scared to or not scared at all to lie why are Democrats on some of this stuff afraid to tell the truth because the truth is good right the, the 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 truth the truth is good, but the truth is complicated. So mm-hmm. I'll go back to your AOC example on fracking. I mm-hmm. 100% agree. I think fracking is the devil. We're trying to win Pennsylvania. We had to win Pennsylvania. So couldn't you make the we argument though that the the, the 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 better long term play is to explain to people in Pennsylvania and Texas why fracking is bad? I guess that like that is the the shortest version of of the the question I'm trying to answer. Yep, you do that after you win. And we ought to spend the next four years explaining to people why fracking is bad and why Joe Biden felt that there should be no new fracking. I mean, he actually engaged the fight in a way that, um, you know, if if you're only evaluating this thing as a strategist, that makes your stomach hurt a little bit. He went pretty far out there on it. It may not have been far enough for some, but the idea that he criticized fracking while trying to win Pennsylvania – Yikes! Um, you know, it's not like our degree of difficulty wasn't high already. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was that was actually a place where Joe Biden took a strong progressive stand. Didn't doesn't measure up to AOC's level of progressive stand. But you have to look at the country not as a monolith. Um, you can make a case in the context of uh, governing, and I expect Joe Biden will. I expect him to be the strongest environmental president we've ever had. For sure. And there's and um, and I, I expect that um, he will continue to talk about the need to get away from fossil fuels ultimately, and the need to stop uh, relying on you know garbage policies like fracking um, that are you know harmful and unnecessary and and are are increasingly making less and less economic sense. I mean, on a lot of environmental issues, actually, the economics are going to do the work uh, that a lot of the work that the Green New Deal wants to do um, by virtue of market forces. Mm -hmm. But so when you're out there trying to win Pennsylvania and you're out there trying to win Texas, that's um, that's an example of um, why don't we why don't we then do this after the election, after we win? And that's something the Republicans, I think, do pretty well. They lie during the election and then they govern like they mean it. Um, um, uh, they govern as if they have a mandate and they just go do it. And if, you know, I, I'll do a whole nother podcast with you critiquing how Democrats govern and, <laughs> and the lack of aggression that we see in some of our campaigns, um, the, the, uh, the tendency to underreach um, both politically and on policy, I'm totally with you. And in fact, I'll go you one better. I think there's a generation of Democratic strategists who came up through the Reagan and Bush years who are beaten. Uh, they, they, they got beat so much, they started to try to figure out how to wind our way through things tactically versus having the kind of the courage of our convictions. Um, the, the way I put it is that Uh, Republicans see sometimes they see a bad poll result for a policy they want and they and they say, well, we're doing it anyway. 
Democrats have a tendency to sometimes see a bad poll result for a policy they want, and they say maybe we shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. um, that exactly. has to change. Yeah. That, is, that, is, that is, to me, political and tactical and strategic aggression. And th this is where I also think there's kind of a false a false characterization of tensions within the party. I don't actually think they're that ideological. They are largely generational, and mm -hmm. they are largely strategic and tactical. They're, I mean, the, the party in our, our delegation on the Hill, I mean, you could, you could, you know, it's like Bill Lambeer's jump shot. You could maybe slide a piece of paper under the difference, but um, it isn't that big. Um, but what I... You know, I, I do think, by the way, that we've got, uh, and Hakeem Jeffries and Gregory Meeks agree with me, that um, we've got some folks in the party. And I and I have huge respect for AOP, AOC as a communicator. I think she's brilliant. I think yeah. the dumbest critique of her ever is that she's some sort of dilettante and she doesn't know what she's doing. No, she's, I think she does exactly I think she's, know what she's yeah. doing. I think she's a really smart person. The problem for me is she she does not always use her powers for good. Um, she ran five million dollars worth of Facebook ads outside of her district, promoting herself in battleground states. How is that possibly remotely helpful? She raised fourteen million dollars for her race and ran behind Joe Biden in her own district. So um, I, I think she actually is someone who's more likely headed to be a TV star than to, to remain in politics. And, um, but those sorts of associations like, you know, being, I am completely anti-fracking, um, that kind of stuff coming from the media stars of our party, um, does create, um, what's the opposite of brand lift brand weight that, 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 uh, requires, more work to be done to overcome it. So How many ads did Democratic candidates have to do saying that they weren't for defunding the police, for example? So Millions here's the thing. So, Greg, this this gets to the tension that. point, though. And, and that is that I look at that, and obviously I'm almost exactly AOC's age, so like, which is mm -hmm. also bizarre because it's like, man, what am I doing with my life? She's in Congress. Um, but And I'm here on a podcast. But she... Um, I wish more people were like her. I wish more people were less forgiving and straight talked about the real consequences of what is going on. I think she is because of that communication school that we agree on. And I just think that she does use that for good. And, you know, the good is, and it comes down to, to me defining the good is, do you believe in the things that she's arguing for are worth arguing for and that they are good policy? Because, she is willing to upset the apple cart arguing for something she thinks will help people. And, and at yeah. the end of the day, that's the argument I want to hear Democrats making because otherwise, why are you fighting for the policy? And if right. Lindsey Graham can go out and shout about whatever bonkers thing he wants to shout about on any given Tuesday, um, that is actually going to hurt people and, and say that if you don't mm -hmm. believe this, there's no place for you in America, mm -hmm then I'm mm -hmm. okay with AOC going, I want this to happen because X, Y, Z, and that is good for me. It is good for you. And maybe the only person it's bad for are the billionaires. And it's really only bad for their bank accounts, but we don't have to worry about that. 
I'm okay yeah. with that because that that's the fight I want to see. Why why do you mm-hmm. disagree with maybe not the fr- like what what yeah. in my framing is is off that would cause you to disagree? Because I don't think the way like obviously the way I framed it is is unfair to say that anyone would disagree with sure, that. Sure, what sure. what is off in the sure, framing sure. there? Well, I think that you can't make policy unless you win elections, and um, this is a little bit of a chicken and egg uh, mm-hmm. issue. Um, how you win elections is a thing that you have data about, that you go and you do um, research, you, you figure it out, how to execute strategy, you get people to the polls, you win the election, then you go get to make policy. And I think that uh, it's entirely appropriate for strong progressives in the caucus to make those points. Um, what I think is problematic is trying to make those points in the context of a closely contested election in ways that actually are going to prevent us from winning enough seats to do the stuff you want to do. You got to be smarter than that. You just have to be. And she's very smart, but I think she's very smart in terms of building her own brand. I think her focus is on building her own brand. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I, I mean, I don't think, I don't think that helping the, the being, you know, that, I mean, she's trying to tell Joe Biden and Kamala Harris who they should put in the cabinet. Come on. Well, well I, I think there's a difference in answering questions in an interview and like pushing, you know, whatever on cabinet. But if, if you're constantly just, I mean, elections are every two years in the house and, and obviously yeah. there's two years, you have the Senate rotation that's on every six. So you have new people up, you know, on, mm-hmm. on that cycle, you have whatever. So if you're just mm-hmm. constantly trying to chase the short term of winning elections, you're never making the long term argument and you never have consistency. And that to me leads to never making the argument. What is, what is, I think Republicans do well for evil is they say the same stuff and have been for 40 years. They have made the same arguments for voter suppression masked as whatever the hell election security bullshit that they are claiming Mm -hmm. is existing. They have said the same thing about a woman's right to choose. They have said the same thing about all of these things that would hurt people, but they've been consistent, which makes it a lot easier to convince people that you're right. And that is why I think that looking at it through we have to win the election yeah of course we have to win the election but we're never going to consistently win and we're never going to change the the overton window of where people accept policy in this country if we are constantly chasing a short-term solution versus consistently beating the drum of what we actually think is best for people and that's what Mm -hmm. i think my frustration is that's what i think aoc's frustration is and but I, I think you also see already some payoff. And I'll go back to a thing that I think Bernie Sanders has done well. The Overton window on Medicare for all has shifted. The idea that it was public option or you're not on the Democratic ticket this year is because for four years, Bernie Sanders has on a very large platform with help of people like AOC and others in the progressive wing of the party explain to people why Medicare for all is good. And and yes, when you're explaining you're losing maybe to an individual voter in that very small micro setting, but on a macro to shift the window that far left on healthcare is going to set up for hopefully a, whatever Joe Biden does as soon as he can 
Lord willing, we win these two mm-hmm. seats in Georgia. It happens very quickly. If not, there's a lot more work mm-hmm. to do, et cetera, et cetera. But if you make yep. that argument over a long, consistent time, even if it is unpopular at first, I think it has been proven time and again that you can win people over. And I think President Obama did that with health care. I think Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. has done that with health care. And also, if we are right and we pass these laws and people see the good that it does, that is the evidence that, that there is no fighting against. Republicans can't overturn Obamacare because too many people have been helped by Obamacare. And, and that is why it is unpopular. And so that is, that is ultimately kind of what I'm trying to get at here and trying to understand is what, even if for an individual voter in Pennsylvania or a, a, some moderately significant number of voters in Pennsylvania, you lose. The more you win them over over time, the less you have to make that argument in the long run because it becomes the standard of what is right and people understand right. it as opposed to ch- constantly chasing a short-term agenda, which is what I feel like Democrats have been doing. And then, by the way, it leads to the governing conversation because now you promise way too much to too many people and it looks like you're not getting anything done. And when you're the party who argues that government actually gets things done, that's a really bad place to be operating from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a couple things. One is, uh, th- those are all, that, that is all valid perspective and i will tell you that one of my great frustrations of the last 10 years is that we didn't run more full-throatedly in 24 in 20 uh in uh, 2014 on the success of obamacare Mm -hmm. totally that in those in those midterms um and i think it had to do with the nature of the seats that were up i i worked for senate majority pack in a couple of races um we should have been more on the front foot, as they say in, in the premiership, that uh, <laughs> about um, about running on Obamacare as a massive success because we could see it coming, and it was already beginning to really help people. But you know, you, you, uh, okay, Mitch McConnell was up that year. We we had some very tough Senate races that year, and I think that tendency um, of uh, trying to thread those needles with white voters um, in very tough states is what leads to the caution that you're concerned about. It is much easier to mobilize and energize voters of color. And uh, now we've seen actually real success by the Biden campaign in mobilizing younger voters. It's much easier to do that than it is to convince white people to vote Democratic. We have not won the white vote since Lyndon Johnson, 1964. Mm -hmm. So trying to beat our heads against this wall, chasing, I call it chasing the white male, the white male whale (laughs) vote in this country, where we think if we just keep trying to convince them that if we just explain how bad fracking is, if we just will do that, Oh, the dream will come true. We'll have we'll win 70 percent of races. We'll, you know, have strong veto proof majority in the Senate. If we would just if people would just listen, if we if we could just explain it to these white people. I think that that is a fallacy. Um, Republicans don't bother with persuasion. They only do mobilization and they are a 95 percent white party. That's easier for yes, them to do than 100%. it is for us to do. And um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to assemble a diverse coalition. And I think uh, 
I have a big problem with um, the idea that our party has to have more white people in it to win. I don't think that's actually true. Um, in fact, I've, uh, I'm 4-0 in the popular vote, 3-1 in the Electoral College, and we didn't win the white vote in any of them. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm less interested in this, you know, uh, in, uh, in, I'm just sort of amazed by the idea that people think that people like Michael Moore um, and Bernie think that the future of the party rests in the white working class of America. I just don't see it. And it's not ideology, it's math. There aren't that many of them that are available to us as voters. And oh, by the way, let's tell the truth. A lot of them are racist. Mm -hmm. Why do you, why do we think defund the police worked? Um, it did work. It absolutely worked. And the, and the, 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 the thing that kills me about it is that it was primarily promulgated by white leftists. Do a Google image search, put in defund the police, look at the crowds. And Gregory Meeks and Hakeem Jeffries and a lot of other African-American politicians at, uh, you know, in Congress and at the local level think the same thing. Um, that um, they, have, uh, an, they have a whole card with white voters that is racism. And no matter how much we explain stuff to people about how Republican, poli I mean, Republican policies are bad for them, about how... Uh, you know, fracking, we, we, we really want to explain this to you. There's a wall there, and it is extremely difficult to surmount. And it can, and it's, and it's not an either-or proposition. We do win a bunch of those people. We do have to win enough of them. Mm -hmm. But to, the, to the, the extent to which we cater to an agenda aimed at convincing white voters to agree with progressive policies is a very, very tough slog. Uh, I, I've, I've, I, I've been trying to do it like my whole career. <laughs> and, uh, and it is incredibly difficult and very frustrating. And no, they don't tell the truth to pollsters, but man, watch an all-white focus group, holy poo-poo. <laughs> um, you can cuss on this podcast, out. by the way. That's the okay. beauty of a podcast. It, it, it comes out. Right. And um, and it and it's something that Republicans are extremely adept at um, at utilizing. But here's the good news. They're dying <laughs> every day. Older white voters are dying. And I don't mean that, uh, you know, to be literally celebrating anything like sure. that. But there's something called demography and the arc of demography bends towards Democrats. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why Joe Biden won Georgia. So um, that, that leads to the final exchange that I, I would love to get into. That's a, a perfect kind of segue to the, the, what the thoughts that are running through my head right now, which is that, it, that demography leading towards demo or towards Democrats is not a self-fulfilling prophecy if we don't do the work. And so I, right. I understand how you took what I said and said, well, trying to convince white people to that fracking is, is bad or that tax this tax policy is good for whatever i'm not necessarily saying we need to make those arguments to to the middle class white male the the what is it that you use the the white male whale the, the that white, we're chasing the, white, the, the, right? the white male whale voter. yeah my, my my challenge would be how do we explain that to the younger progressive crowd white black latinx and other like, how do we explain that to people 
in a way, or not, not necessarily even, when I say explain, I'm not talking about issuing them a policy paper and asking them to sit down and read it. I'm talking about making a very simple, analogous argument that, that it fits in a 15-second commercial that, you know, hey, Medicare for all, it'll make your health care cost less. Boom, there, that's mm-hmm. an argument, right? That, that, mm-hmm. that is more of what I'm talking about. But make it in a way that the younger people who are going to dominate the demographics mm-hmm. fight for it for us. Though, and when I say us, I mean those of us that either have a professional or an unhealthy, unprofessional relationship with politics, those that are super engaged. Right. Because if right. that becomes a conversation amongst friends, now all of a sudden mm-hmm. you, are, you are increasing turnout in an organic way. I think one of the most important things that happened in this election is people in my generation and even younger were saying – this is how you vote. This is where you can vote and pushing their friends. Voting was cool. If you didn't vote in this election, your friends, you might, you probably totally. lost friends and, totally. and making civics and an understanding of what you're voting for. And that involvement in the process matters. Cool is how, mm-hmm. is how that demography leaning towards Democrats becomes truth. And so yep. how do we do that better? And we'll, we'll close with that thought. Yeah. So I totally agree. We just did it really well. Mm -hmm. The question is, can we do it again without Satan to run against? And I think (laughs) that that is, well, McConnell's still out there. Yeah. Yeah. uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Satan and Lucifer. We got it. We got to We got to Trumpify McConnell somehow with these people. Uh, Show Um, more video of him. He does it to himself. God, that guy sucks. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, but I, uh, but I think that what what we did see in this in this election and in this campaign was a massive mobilization of influences of young people to get them to vote, and it worked. I'm not kidding about what LeBron James made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. What he did made a huge difference in this campaign. What Common did, what so many pop culture icons did where they either came out of their shell a little bit and were more partisan, or they just gave a lot more effort this time. It worked. It really helped. I also believe firmly that this generation of the, 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 the young people that we're talking about here are the least racist generation we've ever had in this country, um, and uh, I think that's moving the right direction. The Proud Boys, there's about you know, 48 of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. This generation does not want to associate itself with white supremacy and racism. I firmly believe that in a way that I don't believe about most whites over 50 in this country. So that is a place that that, that's, that's one place we can hang our hat. Um, and And I think what we have done in this election, there's something we call in politics. I think you, maybe they do it in other disciplines too, imprinting. We just imprinted a bunch of people, a bunch of new voters who got really excited to come out and rid this country of Donald Trump. Those people registered as Democrats. Those tend to be lifelong associations. Um, We registered a ton of immigrants. Huge amounts of work were actually done, was actually done on the ground. People never liked to credit Democrats with doing the hard work. Somehow, in a pandemic, we managed 
to achieve the greatest turnout we've ever seen in this country in a presidential election, and we turned out our voters in droves, in droves all mm -hmm. over the country, facing black people just saved this country from Donald Trump. They came out and voted. Mm -hmm. South Carolina first, and then on election day, Latino voters in the Southwest that delivered us, Nevada, Arizona. Those folks are imprinting as Democrats, and we're gotta, and what we've got to do is keep them engaged. And this is, again, where um, you know, our, the bank of energy and money has to, be, uh, has to be utilized wisely. I would much rather spend a lot of energy engaging and remobilizing those younger voters and those voters of color than trying to convince a lot of other people um, on policy terms that they should be with us because those those young people who came out and voted a lot of them are, are like you and a lot of them are smart college educated people and but a lot of them who came out and voted maybe aren't as connected to politics but but boy they can feel the threat if we got to get the branding right mm -hmm. we need to uh and we've got to be mindful of our messengers and and we've got to you know, leverage the, the, the energy of people like AOC, but let's try, can we not make it harder for ourselves uh, outside of her 70% Bronx district? Um, but I think that, um, it, it, you know, if, if, we, if we tune this thing a little bit more and Trump isn't on the ballot, I think we've got some real prospects. Um, I know it's not cool to be optimistic. I get trash for that on Twitter all the time. Um, but I am optimistic about where we're headed. As, as one of your former colleagues uh, and now Pod Save America co-host John Lovett is fond of saying, there are no bonus points for pessimism. So I am, I am there with you, but also optimism comes from the reality and the, the, known, the known quantity that there are a lot of people doing really good work. And uh, I, I know you are one of them. Uh, it is appreciated by those of us who want to see uh, Democrats elected because we believe in in what Democrats want to do with the country. So, um, thanks thanks for all your work and uh, and thanks for coming on the podcast today, man. This was awesome. I'm glad that we did this instead of continuing to bicker on Twitter. I appreciate it, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm glad we did this instead of Twitter anyway. But you you know I'll do it anytime, and and we both have our propensity to fire back. So <laughs> uh, talking is always better. And but thanks for having me on. It was fun. Thanks to Greg for joining the pod. If you want to follow him on Twitter, you can at Greg Pinello. I am at Craig Hoffman, at Craig underscore Hoffman on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up next week, my friend Ryan Houlihan, who works on Capitol Hill in Congress, in the U.S. House of Representatives, writing policy, is going to come on to talk about what it's actually like to work in a congressional office. We know about plenty of Congress people, but the work that gets done behind the scenes by a congressional staff is really what makes our legislative process go. So we're going to talk to him about that, about the stakes of the 2020 election, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I'm excited to chat with Ryan, and that'll be out next week. Until then, make sure you subscribe, rate, review the podcast, and uh, let me know what you thought of this one. So see you next time, right back right here on Chasing Interesting.